WBUR Podcasts, Boston. You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form, and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. If you want more from the show you're hearing, jump over to that show's feed and hit subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Episode 3 of our special series, Essential Trust, What Trust Is, Why We Need It, and What Happens When It's Lost. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're taking on that last question, what happens when trust is lost? We'll look at what's happened in one nation that has some of the lowest institutional and community trust rates in the world. And that country is Brazil. So some numbers. In the United States, about half of Americans say they do not trust the country's political parties. That's according to a recent study by the Inter-American Development Bank. In Brazil, the number is higher, much higher. 70% of Brazilians say they do not trust their political parties. But perhaps you're thinking, okay, that makes sense. After all, political corruption is commonplace in Brazil. Several presidents have been impeached, including a president who was previously jailed on corruption charges and was just re-elected last month. But interpersonal distrust in Brazil is almost as bad as institutional distrust. According to that same survey, about 20% of Americans have low levels of community trust. In Brazil, 63% of Brazilians say they do not trust people in their own communities. Well, trust happens to be one of the strongest indicators of a nation's potential economic growth and well-being. So what impact has those low trust rates had on a nation as huge, diverse, and resource-rich as Brazil? Well, today we're joined by Cheyenne Polimedio. She grew up in Sao Paulo and writes about Brazilian politics, civil society, and the rule of law. She's also senior research manager at the Partnership for Public Service in Washington. Cheyenne, welcome to On Point. Hi, thank you for having me. So first of all, tell me, you know, it's so it's interesting to me to really understand um, what's fundamental to a culture by knowing uh, what that culture uh, uses in its own language. And I understand in Brazilian Portuguese, there are some words that uh, uh, indicate how low trust levels are in Brazilian society. What are those words? Yeah, of course. So I think the 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 most well-known expression in Portuguese is jeitinho brasileiro, which is uh, the Brazilian way, um, which is just a clever way of finding um, shortcuts around the rules. And that can be translated into um, jerry-rig solutions to getting cable or paying to get your driver's license if you failed the test too many times. Um, so these ways of really embedding into the culture the sense that the system isn't fair, so it's not really worth it to play by the rules. And in, and in fact, you're considered smart, you're considered resourceful if you're able to find these ways around the rules. Another really good example is we call 
somebody a 171, which means that person is a fraudster. And 171 is actually an article in the penal code in Brazil that identifies people that are scammers. So we will say, oh, this person is a 171, and everybody will know what that means. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And I understand there's also another phrase about something regarding an animal game? Yeah, so we have this game called Jogo do Bicho, which is which roughly translates into animal animal game. And the one thing that we say is para todos vale o escrito, which roughly translates into the only thing worth it it's what's written in the animal game. So people tend to trust the people who run this game, which is an illegal game, more than they will trust, you know, the official lottery that we have in Brazil, for example. Okay. So, again, this is remarkable, right? Because when things become so commonplace that they just enter the language, you know mm-hmm. that something significant is going on or it's core to that that uh, that society. When you were growing up uh, in Sao Paulo, what were the kinds of things that, uh, that, you know, were normal in everyday life that later on, maybe when you when you moved out of Brazil, you suddenly realized, oh, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be this way all the time? Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, growing up in Brazil in the 90s, I think there was there was a lot of optimism. We had just come out of 30 years of military rule. So in general, I think people saw, you know, their economic prospects getting better. And I think that that optimism sort of translated into higher levels of trust. Um, I think that in the countryside where a lot of my extended family is from, Levels of trust were a little bit higher. But even then, um, I remember I was nine years old when I started riding the bus by myself in Sao Paulo. And my mom wrote me this manual about, you know, how to be on the bus and how to look out for strangers that, you know, might want to take advantage of me or do something nefarious. Um, She would never let me walk home from the bus stop. She would go and pick me up. So there were these little things of um, being careful when you're riding the bus, being careful when you're just standing, you know, by the bus stop or standing in line. We tend to wear our purses in front of our bodies, right? So we would never wear your bag or your backpack on your back, never on the bus, never walking down the street. And when I came to the United States, I remember, you know, seeing people walking around the streets with their iPhones out and thinking, that's crazy. Aren't you afraid you're going to get robbed? Uh, Because I would never do that in Brazil. Okay. So, you know, um, levels of trust between family members is obviously still very high uh, Mm -hmm. in Brazil. But I quoted that number a little bit earlier from the Inter-American Development Bank that they found that 63% of Brazilians said they didn't trust people in their own community. So beyond family, but in community. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that number? Does that number make sense to you? That number definitely makes sense to me. I think... You know, going back to that expression, the jeitinho brasileiro or the even 171, I think we have been sort of conditioned to think that a stranger is always looking for ways to take advantage of you. 
So I think that's very embedded in the culture, that sort of in-group, out-group mentality. But I also think over the last, you know, two decades, we have become much more divided, especially along the lines of religion and ideology. So people tend to, when you think about your family, you know, your family will very likely share the same religion that you do and the same ideology as well. And then you start seeing those um, wider fault lines between the in and outs. And I think over time that translates into, you know, an inability to trust people that think differently than you, that worship differently than you, undergirded by that already cultural sense of a stranger will likely try to take advantage of me. But that number very much resonates with me. Okay. So the change in Brazil in the last couple of decades, I want to come back to that in a quick second, Cheyenne. But but how is this then um, sort of radiating into the institutional culture? Because um, voting is compulsory in Brazil, but what do Brazilians think about, um, you know, when they, when, they, when they go to the ballot box to vote? Yeah, voting, voting is compulsory and people really don't like that. And part of the reason why people don't like that is because they don't really feel that they have legitimate options to choose from. They really think that it doesn't matter who they vote for because whoever they vote for will be corrupt. Um, one interesting uh, nuance of how people vote is that we have this other saying, I feel like I have all the sayings today, but we have this other saying, which is a good example yeah. of how embedded in the culture it is. It's called Hoba um, Mais which translates to robs but get things done. So usually when you're voting for somebody in Brazil, you know they're all going to be corrupt. You're just looking for the one that's going to be corrupt but still going to pave the roads. The one that's corrupt but is still going to get you, you know, your cash benefits at the end of the month. Okay. So what I'm curious about is a couple of things, uh, many things, Cheyenne. This has been absolutely <laughs> fascinating, actually. So um, you moved to the United States when you were, what, about uh, 20 years about old? About 20. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, do you see familiar patterns here in the United States um, that, uh, that you, or at least some that are familiar that you just described uh, in Brazil? Definitely. I think the ideology divide and the religious divide, which in many ways go hand in hand here and just like they do in Brazil, I think that has become a really great source of distrust between people. So when you think about you know, how people choose to interact with each other on social media or what they read. Um, that's all very much, you know, guided by those preferences. And it creates this this divide between people who, you know, in many ways are very similar. So when you think about Brazil, we all still love churrasco. We all still love carnival. We love soccer. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the things that we have in common have been overshadowed by these differences then that lead to mistrust. And I think we see a lot of that here as well, right? When we think about what makes um, Americans American, there's so much that they share in common. But I think that these differences that have been heightened and highlighted by all sorts of, of actors have furthered um, added to that to those levels of mistrust. Yeah. And I think if Americans are not careful, they're going to see very similar numbers to the ones that we have in Brazil. Oh. 
Uh, well, since you mentioned soccer, I just have to say Brazil's showing its flair in the World Cup um, in Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> Joy to watch every time yes. they touch the, the ball. Um, we've just got about 30 seconds before we have to take our first break here, Cheyenne. So just, you know, in a phrase or two, how would you say that this lack of trust across the board in Brazil has had an impact on the country? I think when you think about the role of trust and people's belief that, you know, people around them are good and that government works for them, when you don't have that, reform is really hard. It's really hard for government to do its job. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a government that doesn't work. We're seeing fragmented society. And that really deteriorates our ability to, you know, move forward to to really Mm. take advantage of all those amazing resources that we have as a country. Well, Cheyenne Polymagio, stand by for just a second. We are trying to learn about the impact that low levels of trust have on a nation by taking a look at Brazil today. Much more when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode three of our special series, Essential Trust, What Trust Is, Why We Need It, and What Happens When It's Lost. We're going to be looking uh, a little later in this series uh, about an essential tool in building trust, which might surprise you, and that is healthy skepticism. So we want to know what you're skeptical about because we want to you know get your impressions and your thoughts about things that are worthy of your skepticism, institutions uh, that maybe you're inherently skeptical of. And also, are there times when you have been too skepti- spe- skeptical, excuse me, or have had to overcome that skepticism in order to build trust? Now, you can share your story with us through our on point Vox pop app. It'll come to us in really high quality. Uh, If you don't have it on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop in the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's really easy to use. 
Or if you just want to pick up the phone and call us, you can. That's 617-353-0683. So looking for your stories and thoughts on skepticism for a show later in this series. But today, we are focusing on what happens when trust is lost. And we are trying to learn from the example of Brazil. And Cheyenne Polimedio joins us. She grew up in Sao Paulo and writes about Brazilian politics, civil society, and the rule of law. She's senior research manager at the Partnership for Public Service. She's with us from Washington. And joining us now is Rafael uh, Ioris. He's a professor of Latin American history at the University of Denver, and his research focuses on modern Brazilian political diplomatic, cultural, and intellectual histories. He grew up in Porto Alegre in the southern part of Brazil. Professor Ioris, welcome to On Point. Hello. Thank you for having me. So how far back would you say we need to go in Brazilian history to find the sort of original roots of the distrust that's, uh, you know, growing like a weed in society today? It's a wonderful question, uh, but hard to, to answer. I think uh, the experience of uh, being a colony, and, and I don't think that's exclusive to the situation of Brazil, but in Brazil, uh, in a case uh, where that was experienced in a very intense fashion, uh, a colony, you know, when the, when the Portuguese, in the case of Brazil, went to the Americas, started to exploit, right, the, the territory and and invade the land and take over land from natives and then later on start bringing, uh, you know, captives from Africa, that really creates a very uh, society that is organized on along lines that uh, only benefit a minority of people. So the colonial logic is one where a uh, small ruling local elite is, is benefiting from much of the wealth or, uh, you know, the resources being exploited there and, of course, the metropole countries. So a society shaped on hierarchical, legal, but also economic, political, cultural lines uh, is prone to have uh, a formal, uh, you know, formal institutions that do not benefit, do not allow mobility or inclusion for the majority of its, you know, its population. So uh, it, it's not surprising mm. that over time, people would see that, uh, you know, the formal systems, uh, you know, don't apply to them, don't work for them, don't benefit them. And hence, uh, why should they care or trust them? So and and it, we should note that uh, we're not talking about an insignificant period of time here, right? I mean, it's what a three hundred plus year uh, portion of uh, Brazilian history. The the uh, the Portuguese colonized Brazil from what fifteen hundred to at least eighteen hundred. Uh, exactly. So uh, Brazil has, a, I mean, the colony of Brazil compared to independent Brazil, right? The, uh, yes. the place where where Brazil yeah. is, it was a longer under colonial rule than uh, during independent life. So uh, yes, around 1500s is sort of the formal year, you know, of arrival of Portuguese colonizers, but uh, they they enhanced their occupation of the territory and developed, you know, their presence uh, later and a little slower actually than the, the Spanish colonizers did. But yes, that kind of uh, over 300 years uh, for, uh, in, a, in a kind of a general sense. Uh, and only, what, 200 years now, we just celebrated uh, the 200th anniversary of uh, formal independence and I would say formal political independence because there's an entire conversation, of course, in, in the, you know, this literature on Latin American history and politics that, uh, you know, how, what do you need to really call a uh, country independent? Mm. But uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. sure we're going to have time for that here. But, <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> we probably won't. But, but, but so, yes, uh, under colonial rule, which is kind of organized uh, typically along the lines that I, I briefly, you know, suggested before. Okay, so this is an important, I, I, I'm glad you started with this because it, it's, it's just important to realize that, again, I'm just repeating things, but these are, these are 
tools to help us understand how Brazil got to the place it is now. More time under colonial rule than as a you know, quote-unquote, independent nation. Now, Cheyenne, I'm just wondering what you think about that, that we need to look back to uh, Brazil's colonial history in order to understand modern low levels of trust. Oh, absolutely. I think that when you think about a society that all, all that we've ever known is a system that advantages a few and takes advantage of most, you can see how that plays out in other other areas of life to the present day, right? We can talk about how how prevalent nepotism has been in Brazilian society. We can talk about how challenging has been for minorities and the poor to have access to higher education. So it all it all goes back to that colonial past. And it, it's really, really hard to to shed that cultural root. Mm. Now, Professor Ioris, one might think that uh, Brazil's uh, independence from Portuguese colonialism would be a, a hopeful inflection point in in Brazilian history, right? Um, see if I uh, got my dates right here. Actually, I had no idea because our producer page is very good about these things. But um, <laughs> she so independence from Portugal in 1822, abolishment of slavery in 1888, declared a public in 1889. Um, would that not be a, a moment where the Brazilian people uh, would be hopeful uh, for you know creating a new country that would work for them? Uh, it, it it would be. <laughs> uh, so yes, I mean that's interesting. The independence of Brazil, kind of a unique case in in uh, the Americas, was uh, negotiated with Portugal. Not really. I mean, there were some you know battles, but largely uh, the the new country of Brazil. Uh, paid, you know, Portugal for its independence. So, so they purchased their independence, and that uh, displays and sh- uh, kind of showcases the sort of the moderate uh, tone of the Brazilian independence process. Uh, it was also the only country that had a emperor. There was a king in Brazil for much of the 19th century, and slavery continued to be legal, as you just mentioned, only in 1888 to be abolished. It was abolished. I mean, thank- thankfully, uh, peacefully. Uh, not with a civil war like in the case of the United States, uh, but still, right? It was a long process, and actually, there were more slaves being uh, brought into Brazil after its independence. and And I just want to mention one thing: so, Brazil was the largest uh, slave society in modern history, mm. uh, and slaves is slavery is not kind of only in the fields, right? Slavery was a pervasive element of Brazilian uh, society in general, in the cities. Uh, uh, most people own a slave. Uh, uh, former slaves could, you know, I mean, there were cases that they themselves would purchase a slave as a way to make money to, to be able to, you know, have an income. Uh, uh, so they were pervasive. So I would say slavery was not just an, an economic institution. It was a cultural, political, of course, legal. Uh, but in many, many ways, it helped shape Brazilian society. And then when uh, the, the emperor, the monarchy ended and slavery ended, uh, so they uh, had a nice constitution mimicked after the U.S. constitution. Uh, by the way, uh, but it, it was a system that only worked once again. So the recurrences of, of kind of the past, the legacies of the past, only worked for the very few. If you think about the beginning of the 20th century, only about uh, you know five percent of Brazilians actually could vote. Elections were even you know those who could vote. It wasn't. It was basically a negotiation between ruling elites. Uh, it was largely elite, you know controlled uh, elections. So uh, it, 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 the, the, uh, there was a big contrast between uh, what's on paper and what's on the ground. Uh-huh. So I think that also reinforces this perception that, again, what's on paper 
I mean, I, I agree with what was said before by Cheyenne that uh, uh, there's this idea that, oh, if it's on paper, you know, it's the only thing we can trust. Yes. But what I mentioned here is in the sense you can have, you can have nice laws, but, uh, you know, the implementation. So everyone is equal according to the law now because slavery is ended. But the path for mobility for former slaves, for non-white Brazilians, uh, for women, right? They, they, it was very, very limited and continued to be limited for, you know, it was a very gradual process. It, uh, Brazil has a very sort of gradual evolution in terms of the extension of rights and, and extension of uh, socioeconomic and racial inclusion, which uh, I would say is, is still actually unfolding. Yeah. And the, the nation has suffered, um, I mean, the the sort of ongoing modern political corruption aside, there have been political traumas, right, uh, that have reverberated through Brazil, which then I guess further undermined trust. Because tell us the story of, uh, hopefully I'm saying his name properly, Getulio Vargas. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, pretty pretty good. Uh, so Getulio Vargas was uh, arguably uh, one of the most uh, consequential presidents of Brazilian history. He ruled the country for almost two decades. A good chunk of those uh, almost 20 years was under dictatorial rule. Uh, so it's a very complex figure for many different reasons. Again, he ruled in an authoritarian way, but he was actually the one who granted very significant new laws that expanded the voting rights to women. He granted, uh, and, I, and, I, and I use the word granted in a purposefully because it was not really, I mean, people expected and mobilized for that, but it was not done in a way where people actually had much of a saying. So it was granted from above, you know, rights to workers like wages and rights to organize in unions. So uh, a lot of it was sort of provided by the state. He enhanced the role of the state in society and the economy. Uh, but again, that also kind of confirms the idea that though uh, though now you could actually see a little bit of improvement in a formal sense, and, and I don't think that should be minimized. Uh, it makes a huge difference if you have a law that allows you to be part of a union or not. But again, in a controlled fashion. So unions were under control of the state. Uh, wages would be increased only through a negotiation with your employer under the supervision of a state uh, agency. So again, always the inclusion, even when it did occur, was done in a, in a, in a controlled, top-down fashion. Uh, only recently, I would say, Brazil really experienced a what one would call a you know, more inclusive uh, democratic system, I would say, you know. Uh, system that actually has been facing a lot of difficulties recently, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the last 30 years or so. And then, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he take his own life? He did. He did. So uh, the it's, he killed himself on, on uh, 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 1954. Uh, there was an accusation of corruption, and but the main point was that uh, uh, he, he didn't want it to be... So he had been already uh, removed from power by the military, and they threatened to do that again. And that's another important actor in Brazilian history, the military, yeah. including including now. Uh, they have played this sort of self-declared, self-appointed intervening role uh, of deciding what are the limits of the inclusion, what are the limits of democracy in Brazil. And they, so they uh, threatened to remove him once again. He had been removed in, in 45, and he decided that he would not go, you know, Quietly, that uh, eventually he killed himself. Again, a very controversial, uh, uh, but also consequential defining figure of Brazilian uh, political, but also, uh, uh, of course, the economic, cultural history. So, but can you tell us, like, how that had an impact on the Brazilian people when he when Vargas took his own life? 
Well, again, because he was seen and he was ruling a little more kind of doing overtures to workers uh, in the in the early 50s. He uh, enhanced the role once again of the state in the economy. He was promoting, that's why they call him a populist now in the 50s and a developmentalist. He enhanced once again the role of uh, the state in promoting what would be the kind of the chapter of uh, fast industrialization in Brazil. And so uh, he shot himself. First, I mean, there's the trauma of a president who shoots himself with a with revolver on his heart. There's a museum in Rio where you can actually go to the bedroom and see kind of that image, you know, where he killed himself on the bed. And so there's that element, symbol, uh, symbolism of that. He left a very uh, poignant letter, you know, uh, saying that he was taking his own life for the sake of the country and the country should rally behind his cause to defend the national interests. So people took to the streets. People took to the streets. Millions of people took to the streets to mourn him uh, and to kind of attack, uh, you know, the, what who they saw as representatives of the elites, including, uh, in this case, was interesting, uh, they uh, considered to be foreign interests in the United States, whatever was called the U.S., in the case of Brazil, was called America. So there were stores that called themselves uh, America, Store America Store, which was not U.S. owned by any means. Just someone liked to put the name of a store called America, and they could be, and they faced, you know, the possibility of being having stones thrown at them, mm. <laughs> their their window sh uh, uh, shops, and so so it was it was kind of created this 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 really uh, divisive moment of Brazilian history. But in a way. Uh, the opposition that were uh, trying to remove him kind of uh, read the streets and uh, quiet down for a bit. And uh, they would gather a new uh, uh, momentum to, to actually intervene in politics once again. But that would be in 64 when the military actually yeah. takes over power. Yes. Yeah. OK, so that does bring us to March of 1964, where the coup d'etat by the Brazilian military was launched, uh, I should say, with the support of the United States. Uh, and the, and President Joao Goulart, uh, a leftist, at, uh, president of Brazil at the time, uh, who had proposed reforms uh, that uh, many uh, in Washington, I should say, in particular, feared would turn Brazil into um, another communist Cuba. So on April 1st of 1964, uh, President Goulart fled Brazil and the head of the Brazilian Senate, Auro Mura de Andrade, who supported the coup, officially declared the presidency vacant. Não podemos permitir que o Brasil fique sem governo abandonado. He's saying there, we cannot allow Brazil to have an abandoned government. There is under our responsibility the population of Brazil, the people order. Thus, I declare vacant the presidency of the republic. Now, the military di dictatorship in Brazil lasted for more than 20 years until 1985. 20,000 people were tortured under the dictatorship and more than 400 people disappeared or killed. Cheyenne, uh... I mean, you you had family who uh, who lived through this period of uh, of Brazilian history. What's what is the ongoing impact of, of the military rule uh, uh, of Brazil on Brazilians today? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very interesting. I will just say that my mom used to tell me these stories of when she was a teenager in Brazil and she would be with her siblings and she'd be complaining about the military junta and my grandma would shush her. She would say, you, you can't be speaking out loud because people would get disappeared. So it was, it was very much a time of a lot of fear and a lot of apprehension. What I think has been interesting is 
Ever since um, we've had these major corruption scandals in Brazil, especially with the car wash, the Lava Jato scandal, there's been this sort of renaissance, this nostalgia for the for dictatorship, for the military rule in Brazil. So what we're seeing today is a very large segment of the population that says, you know what, government can't can't govern. We can't trust government. Government is unable to give us law, to give us order, to improve the economy. And actually, things weren't so bad when the military was in power. So the sort of, you know, amnesia of what happened and this yearning for, you know, uh, more control and more organization that they seem to believe the, the military would be able to bring. Well, Cheyenne Polymagio, stand by for a moment, and Rafael Ioris, same thing. We have a lot more to talk about uh, regarding how trust is really holding Brazil and the Brazilian people back, and we'll do that in just a moment. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode three of our series, Essential Trust, What Trust Is, Why We Need It, and What Happens When It's Lost. And we're focusing on that last part of the question, and we're looking at what's happened and happening in Brazil, a country with some of the lowest rates of trust in the world. Now, we're joined today by Cheyenne Polimegio and Rafael Ioris, and we were discussing Brazilian uh, cultural and political history and how there's a long story that's led to the rampant distrust in Brazilian society, and including part of that story being modern corruption, which does seem to be quite deep in Brazil. Um, For example, it wasn't all that long ago where Dilma Rousseff was elected president of Brazil in 2010. She was the first woman president in the country's history. She held office for six years, but then was impeached uh, in uh, 2016. And even before that, uh, the president prior to her, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, commonly known as Lula, was president from 2003 to 2010. His name will sound familiar to you. But in 2017, in a controversial trial, he was convicted on charges of money laundering and corruption, sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. His appeal failed, and he was arrested on April 7, 2018. And here's the last speech Lula gave uh, that year before he turned himself into the police. Lula says there, this head of mine will not drop. My mother made my neck short so I cannot drop my head. And it will not fall because I want to leave it here with my head held high and my chest out because I will prove my innocence. That was Lula in 2018. He spent 580 days in jail. And then in March of 2021, the Supreme Federal Court in Brazil ruled that the judge who oversaw Lula's corruption trial, was biased, and his convictions were annulled. And then, this year, Lula da Silva won back the Brazilian presidency against uh, President Jair Bolsonaro. So he, uh, his victory marks a return of the left to power. And here's a clip of Lula's victory spe- speech just uh, a little, about a month ago, on October 30th, 2022. Nesse 30 de outubro histórico, 
a maioria do povo brasileiro deixou bem claro and Lula saying there, on this historic October 30th, the majority of Brazilians made it very clear that they want more and not less democracy, that they want more and not less social inclusion and opportunities for all, that they want more and not less respect under, uh, and understanding among Brazilians. That's uh, Brazilian President Lula on October 30th. Cheyenne, let me just ask you quickly, you know, you had said earlier that when Brazilians go to vote, they kind of go into the ballot box with the presumption that ju- just about everyone is corrupt. And yet here Lula has been reelected after serving more than 500 days in prison. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's uh, Brazilians always always surprising you. I think the, the main thing here is it's less about... Lula and more about Bolsonaro. I mm-hmm. think when you look at the 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 kind of politics that Bolsonaro did and the way that he managed the country through the COVID-19 pandemic and the sort of effects that that had on the population, in addition to a lot of corruption scandals that came out um, associated with him, associated with his sons, for a candidate that ran on an anti-corruption, anti-establishment platform, I think that was sort of one of those you know, everybody is corrupt, really, even the guy that was the poster child for military rule that says, you know, I'm anti-Lula. I stand for everything um, against uh, Lula. Even even if that guy is corrupt, then people end up choosing Lula because at least Lula does things for the people. So I don't think Brazilians are voting for Lula under any illusion that maybe he was innocent, maybe he didn't do the things that he was accused of doing, but they are really voting for him because they do think back on those years under his presidency when people were able to, you know, go on vacation. They were able to take planes, they were able to really, you know, have a better standard of living, which is something that they've lost under Bolsonaro. Uh Okay. So I uh, want to refocus the conversation back on what is the really the day-to-day impact on the lives of Brazilians um, with all this, with the corruption and the low levels of trust in institutions and low levels of even community trust. So in order to do that, um, I referenced some studies a little earlier about how trust is low in Brazil, but it's not just a Brazilian problem. It's a problem across Latin America because only one in 10 Latin Americans and uh, people of the Caribbean say they can trust each other. Just one in 10. And that lack of trust has been embedded in the region, as we talked about, for as long as it's been measured, which is about 40 years we know that in those regions in which there was colonialism, there was a slavery and forced labor, sort of violent conflict, now there is a legacy of mistrust. But also we know that the institutions, the culture that evolved from that colonial history has also you know, perpetuated some of the conditions that lead to mistrust, particularly inequalities in the distribution of power and assets. So that's Carlos Scartacini. He's leader of the Behavioral Economics Group of the Inter-American Development Bank. He's also co-author of the book Trust, the Key to Social Cohesion and Growth in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, And it's groups like the Inter-American Development Bank that have been measuring trust, uh, as I mentioned, for some four decades. And he says the long history of mistrust has hurt the region's economic growth. 
In the last 60 years, Latin America and the Caribbean have not been able to close the development gap with the developed world. What we say is that mistrust is a tax on development. So basically, when you don't trust, everything becomes more difficult. So when you don't trust, the firms do, do not grow. And why is that? Because you don't hire employees. When you mistrust others, you are not willing to open a new location for your firm because you don't want to give it to somebody you don't know and you don't trust. So particularly in Latin America and the Caribbeans, firms remain small. So they are either you know, single owners or basically they're family-owned firms. You only grow as much as your family grows. So if you listen to what Carlos is saying there, it's not just growth. Lack of trust has a pernicious impact on almost every single aspect of doing business in places in Latin America like Brazil. In a very mistrustful society, what you are going to have is that every product is going to have an alarm and there's going to be a very elaborate security system and there are going to be security guards. And there is going to be a cashier that you have to go through. Okay, now you are using a lot of resources just for checking out the transaction, just for reducing the, the possibility that somebody is going to cheat on you or they're going to steal something from you. All of those resources now cannot be used in the productive process. They are being wasted in a way just on controlling or reducing the mistrust. And this widespread mistrust doesn't just affect business. Scartacini says it weakens public institutions too, which in turn hampers the quality of life for almost everyone. When there is mistrust, there is no social cohesion. We don't come together as a society to solve our common problems. We are not willing to do the little sacrifices that we need for societies to thrive. In those conditions, then, it's very difficult for, for individuals to demand public goods, for example. If I don't trust others, if I, if I don't trust that others will demand public goods, if I don't demand that the government will be willing to provide public goods, for example, then what happens is that we retrench from the public sphere. We prefer not to pay our taxes. We prefer to provide private education, private security guards. Okay, but what's driving what here? Is low community trust driving down trust in government, or is it the other way around? You cannot trust others if you don't trust the government. Why? Because in the end, it is the government, the institution that basically prevents others from taking advantage of you. On the other hand, it's very difficult for you to trust the government if you don't trust others. Why? Because it's only a strong society that can keep the government in check. You know, make sure that the government doesn't take advantage of you. Meaning low community and institutional trust go hand in hand. They negatively reinforce each other to the harm of many and the benefit of a very few. Which is why Scartacini says if a nation is going to do anything to increase trust levels, it must address the two biggest drivers of mistrust. They are information asymmetry and power asymmetry. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, Carlos Scartacini says politicians and institutions they control must become more transparent and more equitable. And in communities where institutions work for everyone, and when authorities tell citizens what they're going to do and when they do it, trust rises. But so far, Scartacini says, not enough countries in Latin America are doing that or doing it very well, and it's costing them. The main thing we want for people to take away from our study is that trust matters. And trust is at the center of strong societies, of a strong social cohesion, and basically at the center of sustainable and inclusive growth. If we want strong democracies, we need more trust. If we want more growth, we need, we need more trust. That's the key. 
That's Carlos Cartesini. He's the leader of the Behavioral Economics Group at the Inter-American Development Bank, also the co-author of the book Trust, the Key to Social Cohesion and Growth in Latin America and the Caribbean. Well, Professor Ioris, let me ask you, so first of all, do you agree or disagree with Scartesini and his call for reducing information and power asymmetry? And if so, what are the first steps to doing that in Brazil? Well, uh, first of all, let me let me congratulate on your on your Portuguese pronunciation. It's it's actually very good. <laughs> all the names that you have mentioned, uh, not so easy. But uh, no, I agree. I, I essentially agree. I would say that um, if you think from a political perspective, like democracy is is a social contract, right? Hence, it's based on on social bonds. Uh, meaning, it works if we believe in in that agreement, in that pact to make it work. But you could go beyond. If you think of the history of you know, modern capitalism, even the, the main sort of thinkers, you know, like John Locke, you know, the, one of the kind of the indirect founding fathers of the U.S. even, uh, the idea of a government would, to, would be to respect contracts. And when they mean contracts, is is also not only in sort of the political contracts, but in the sense that I agree that when I sign a contract of selling or, or purchasing something that uh, will be respected, right? So, so it, it boils down to, to actually being a fundamental element, right, of, of economics, of politics, of society in general. There's a whole, you know, anthropological reflection on this that, you know, in, in an informal way, uh, it, what keeps people together, living together peacefully is, is trust. So uh, I agree that transparency uh, in, in, uh, has to be enhanced, so information symmetry, uh, that that can be done. And I think in many countries, it has actually improved in Latin America in the last few years. Uh, uh, new laws, uh, transparency laws, uh, and many others, accountability agencies that actually, well, one of the things that actually made uh, corruption more visible in Brazil, which with corruption, which has existed, of course, throughout its history, including in, in the events that was mentioned, were mentioned before, were actually some agencies put in place, ironically, by the Labour Workers' Party government, many of them, not only it, them, but but the, many of the agencies and laws put in place for accountability and transparency, kind of to investigate investigative powers to the federal police, to the public ministry, federal public ministry. Uh, so that's one way. But also, I think it goes beyond that, right? Uh, uh, in a way, we could speak not only of uh, in terms of transparency, but we can say uh, you have to live through the experience of democracy. Democracy can only be improved. Uh, democracy, and I say about it uh, loosely in the sense, right? The trust on on each other uh, of the social pacts that we want. We want to peace, live peacefully as a society, it can only be improved by more democracy, not mm. less. Uh, uh, and, and Brazil has a history of not having experience uh, in many other Latin American countries, you know, full democracy, whatever that means, or more better democracy. Uh, democracy has been actually an exception, not the norm. So in that sense, uh, uh, again, it's, you have to give it a chance through improvements, through new laws and through participation. I just want to give a little bit of a silver lining, though all of what was said has largely, you know, it, it's basically uh, correct. I would say that also there are strong bonds, not only in family ties and people you can trust, uh, people with whom you have established ties. Historically, they would go through to church. Uh, and I think uh, Catholic church now, it actually goes through church again, but more on the evangelical side, I would say. Uh, but with people who would have established ties. But uh, there's a, there are a lot of social uh, mobilization through a grassroots, through an extensive uh, network of people from different you know realms of society uh, who trust each other uh, for, uh, sufficiently to organize together, to mobilize together, to demand new rights, to expand rights, who actually want to improve Brazilian democracy from the bottom up. 
So, uh, and I, th- I think that happens in other countries too, but in Brazil, it certainly is the case. Uh, I yeah. Think, uh, uh, Let me just yes. step in here because that's a really, really important point, right? That that Brazil's greatest resource is its people, right? And, and in Absolutely. fact, Bra- Brazil is such an important country. The world needs Brazil to succeed to its maximum uh, potential as well. So, I mean, we've just got a, a minute or so to go. Cheyenne, I want to give you the, the last word here today. What would you, what more would you like to see happen in Brazil to, to, to build back trust and to um, allow the country to fully flourish? Yeah, uh, thank you so much. I think I would second everything that Yoris has said. You know, we in, in America, we say democracy is an experiment, and it's very much an experiment in Brazil as well. And it's so young. Brazilian democracy is really young. So I think the the care and attention to making institutions more transparent, to making them more accountable, to earning back the public's trust can be really, really crucial to changing the, the state of things today. But I want to end with an example that I think I think maybe will help us end on a, on a more positive note. Uh, we were talking about the World Cup um, yeah. and Brazil doing really well. It's very funny, you know, you talk to Brazilians and on the surface, a lot of people will say, yeah, you know, Brazil is not as good as it used to be. We used to play amazing soccer and we're not, we're not quite as we used to be. But deep down, everybody's rooting for Brazil. Everybody still has a little bit of hope that maybe this year is the year that we're gonna take home you know, the World Cup. And I think we feel that way about government. I think we feel that way about each other. I think we are, you know, distrustful. I think we feel that institutions have failed us. But I think there is a lot of hope. Brazilians are very hopeful. Mm -hmm. So I think if we can successfully tap into that and remind people of, you know, what we have in common and what unites us, I think we have we have a good chance. Well, Cheyenne Polymedio, uh, Senior Research Manager at the Partnership for Public Service, great pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And Rafael Iores, Professor of Latin American History at the University of Denver. Professor Iores, it's been a great pleasure to have you on, too. Thank you. Like- Thank you. Well, tomorrow in episode four of our series, Essential Trust, we're going to talk about the importance of skepticism. So come back and join us for that. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.